I confess that I listen to contemporary Christian music. And although some of it is a little too schlocky for me and a little too much about me and my thing that I have going on with Jesus, some of it's really good. One of my favorite contemporary Christian songs is by Corey Asbury, and it's called Reckless Love. It starts like this. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life into me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give your life away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. When I hear that phrase, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. I think of the words of the prophet Zephaniah who said to Israel in a time when God's voice had been silent for so long and they wondered if the Messiah was ever coming. And Zephaniah says, God will renew you in love and will rejoice over you with singing makes me think of those moments when Jonathan was just an infant and I would be roused from my sleep in the middle of the night by the sound of his crying. And I would go and scoop him up and swaddle him tight to my chest and sit in the rocking chair by a window that glistened with the light of a harvest moon. And I would sing over him until he was soothed and quieted. I never knew that the human heart could feel such love until I became a mother. That's God's love singing over us. The phrase, chases me down, fights till I'm found, reminds me of a time when Danny had just been born. He was barely a little over a month old, and his brother Ben was just over two. And we were on a family road trip and stopped at Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico because Jonathan, who was four and a half, and David, who was ten, wanted to go down under the earth. As we descended into the cave, which is 750 feet to the floor, which is the equivalent of the height of a 75-story building, they were all excited, and I was taking deep breaths because I don't like to be under the earth or under the water or anything like that. But as we began to walk in the cave with its high ceilings and beautiful caverns, I began to relax. Now, one of the highlights of the cave is the bottomless pit. It's not actually bottomless, but it's about 150 feet deep. And so it's not something you want to fall into. And as we were walking along and approaching the bottomless pit, it was just a couple of turns up the trail, and I was relaxing my grip on Ben's hand, released just a little bit, and he slipped out of my grasp and went running ahead. 
I went into a total state of panic and flew after him, leaving Jonathan and David behind until I caught up with him, chased him down until I found him and swooped him up literally just feet from the edge of that pit. I still have nightmares about that. But I moved faster in that moment than I ever thought was humanly possible because there was no way that while I had breath as his mother that he was going to fall in that pit. And so it is with God toward us who chases us down until we are found with a love that is beyond our ability to imagine. Okay, pastor, that's all real nice, but what does that have to do with our lectionary text for today? Well, that's a good question. It actually has a lot to do with our lectionary text because in our text from the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to a community in exile, longing for home, longing for a place of welcome, longing to be free from judgment and labels and condemnation, that God is going to make a new covenant with them and with us. It is a covenant that will be written on their hearts. It is not a covenant that is rooted in the law that cannot be attained and therefore requires continual sacrifice. Instead, it is a covenant rooted in love that cannot be escaped. A love that will sing over us with joy, that will chase us down until we're found. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Let's pray. God, we're tired we're weary. We've tried so hard to live up to expectations that others have imposed on us, that others have told us you impose on us. And God, all you want is to set us free. All you want is for us to hear you singing over us with love, to allow you to catch us so that we know that we are found and loved and welcomed home to your table of grace. And so God, would you speak this morning so that we can hear you, so we might live in your freedom and might be lights of that freedom to others until everyone finds their place at your table. For we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus, who is the sign and the seal of your new covenant of love. Amen. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied over four decades of what was some of the most tumultuous years in Israel's history. He was called into prophetic ministry as a young man, about 13 years into the reign of King Josiah. Now, King Josiah was also brought to the throne as a very young man. He ascended the throne in about 627 B.C., and in 614, Jeremiah was called into prophetic ministry. While Josiah was on the throne, these two young men looked around at the leadership in Israel, both the political and the religious leadership, and saw idolatry. The leadership was pursuing other gods of wealth, power, privilege that led to violence and marginalization of whole groups of people 
whom the religious and political elite considered other, strange, unworthy, unwelcome. Josiah, with the help of the prophet Jeremiah, began to try to address this corruption and this idolatry and bring Israel back to its first love of Yahweh and began to institute reforms. But those reforms were short-lived because Josiah died in 609 B.C. and the reforms died with him. But Jeremiah continued his prophetic witness calling the leadership of Judah to account. Now, historically, what had happened at this time was that Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And Israel had fallen to Assyria and been taken into captivity and exile because of this same corruption. And Jeremiah prophesied, spoke truth to power to the leadership in Judah, saying the same fate will happen to you if you don't repent of your idolatrous ways, if you don't repent from using your privilege and power and wealth to marginalize and exclude the very people God called you to welcome and love and make room for. It was not unlike what's happening in the religious and the political leadership of today, where voices of white supremacy, of racism, of homophobia, of sexism are causing violence and marginalization to Asian and Asian Americans, to black lives that matter, to the LGBTQ community, to women, to immigrants. And they are doing so in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and the church in large part is either remaining silent or failing to make disciples who understand that that is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a matter of a difference of opinion. It is a violation of the very foundation of the Christian witness. And we are complicit in it because we have been more concerned with popularity, with being nice, with making sure that the pews are filled and the money's coming in, rather than saying you cannot follow Jesus and participate in these kinds of ideologies because they are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jeremiah is facing a similar situation, and nobody likes him. He's causing trouble. He's stirring up trouble. And so they throw him in jail. They put him in stocks and throw things at him. And they call him the weeping prophet because he's constantly calling them to account. And sure enough, true to Jeremiah's words, while Jeremiah is alive and prophesying, Babylon lays siege to Judah, conquers it, comes into Jerusalem, decimates the city, and burns the temple to the ground. And the very people who are marginalizing others with their power and privilege are robbed of all power and privilege, and they become one of the marginalized and are hauled off into exile in Babylon. Jeremiah remains behind in Jerusalem with those who are left behind, also marginalized and devastated. But Jeremiah's prophecy is not hopeless. In the text that we have for this morning, Jeremiah speaks a word of hope to those who are in exile and says, God's going to make a new covenant with you. 
God's going to make a covenant that does away with the law that you could not satisfy, that does away with the law that required sacrifice, that caused condemnation and judgment, that you used to divide people from one another, to exclude people, to label them an abomination or incompatible or any other category that set people over and above others. God's going to do away with that covenant and enter into a new one. And this covenant is going to be centered in the love of God, in the heart of God. It's going to be written on our hearts, and it's going to draw all people home to God. This is a new covenant. It's not an amended covenant. It's not a redo of the old covenant. This is a new covenant that does away once and for all with the purity laws, with the Levitical code, and with the requirement that there be blood sacrifices. Our text from Hebrews actually supports that understanding when it tells us that Christ, who is the sign and seal of this new covenant, is a priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the heck is Melchizedek? And what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's really intriguing and interesting. So let's go back in history and figure it out because it'll tell us something about this new covenant. If you'll remember, go all the way back to Genesis. Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees to take his family and his uh, herds and cattle and all that he has and leave and go to a land that God will show Abraham, which is the land of Canaan. He takes with him his nephew Lot. And they travel together and finally end up in Canaan and begin to settle there. And there are Canaanite tribes in the region. Abraham prospers. Lot prospers. Their tribe increases. Their herds increase. And they are too much together for the land. And so Abraham says to Lot, his nephew, look, let's spread out. You pick whatever region of Canaan you want, and then I'll take what's left. And so Lot chooses the upper plain. It's lush. It's fertile. It has the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot settles in Sodom. And Abraham turns south and settles in the Oaks of Mamre. But remember, there are still Canaanite tribes also in the area. And one day, the Canaanite tribes attack Lot and his tribe and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and take Lot captive, and take all of their herds and their cattle and their resources. Word comes to Abraham that this has happened, and so he assembles a group of men, and they go after those who have taken Lot, and they defeat them. They rescue Lot and his family and bring all of that plunder back. And when Abram returns, he is greeted by Melchizedek, who is a king of Salem and is a priest of the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth. Names mean something, and Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Salem, the city that he is king over, means peace. Melchizedek is a precursor, a foreshadower of the king of righteousness, the prince of peace who is coming to establish the reign of God. Now get this, Melchizedek creates an altar 
and they worship the true God together. And Melchizedek offers Abram bread and wine. It is a Eucharistic feast, precursing, foreshadowing the coming of the one who will literally give his life as body, bread, and blood, wine. The coming Christ. And Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of the plunder. This is where the tithe starts. This is way before the Levitical law that was established under Moses that required all these purity obligations and blood sacrifice. And the author of the letter of Hebrews said, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what? What does that tell us? First of all, it's an order distinct from the Levitical law. Melchizedek precedes the Levitical law. Goes back to the time of Abraham. This is a new covenant that has nothing to do with the Levitical law that condemned people and things as unclean, as abominations, and marginalized whole groups of people who could not satisfy the law. It also tells us that this is an end to the blood sacrifice, which was part of the Levitical law, not part of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, this seal and sign of the new covenant, is after the order of Melchizedek. It is a new covenant free from the judgment of the law, free from all labels of clean and unclean. We know this is true because the apostle Paul picks up that same theme in Galatians when he says, in Christ, there's no more male or female in terms of inclusion, gender is irrelevant, and therefore so is sexual orientation. There is no Jew or Gentile, those who can keep the law and do, and those who can't and don't. There's no distinction in terms of the welcome in God, slave or free, one's economic status, one's ability to pay a tax, or how they're treated in society is irrelevant in this new kingdom. That law, that covenant is gone and here's the other thing that I just think is really cool. Melchizedek is a Canaanite king. And yet he worships the one true God, signaling that this new covenant is of a breadth and width that we can't even imagine. God's going to bring all the nation home. Everyone's going to find a place at the table of God's grace because all are created in God's image and no one's going to be excluded. Christ, the sign and seal of this new covenant, is of the order of Melchizedek. And that brings us to our gospel text, which also confirms that understanding. Jesus tells this group that has come to talk to him that if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, the Levitical system of sacrifice and purity rules and circumcision and all the things that went with it that said, you're in and you're out, dies on the cross with him. How do we know that? Because again, in Galatians, Paul says this. Under the Levitical law, someone who was hung on a tree, on a cross, was cursed. Was an abomination. 
And God, God's self in Jesus becomes that which the law curses to put an end to all cursing, to put an end to all labels that curse people as an abomination or incompatible or unclean because God's self becomes the very thing which the law curses in order to put an end to it. And so God does on the cross and invites us into a new covenant of love. We celebrate that new covenant every time we come to this table. God's body broken for us. God's life poured out for us to put an end to all sacrifice, to put an end to all labels, to all judgments, to all condemnation. And when we celebrate the waters of baptism, we honor this new covenant as well recognizing that it's God's action of grace that comes towards us. We don't have to earn it. It's not about whether we qualify. It's because God chooses us in love, and God's grace pursues us until we're found and sings over us with love. It broke my heart to hear the Pope say what he did, particularly with respect to families. To say that those who are creating families as same-gender couples, either with their own biological children or through the adoption out of foster care, is not a part of God's plan. It's wrong beyond my ability to say. Because when I thought this morning about what is an image in our current context of this covenant of God, it is the covenant of adoption, Paul talks about that. The author to the letter of the church in Ephesus says, we are adopted into God's family where we find our home, where we find belonging, where we are celebrated and seen and called forth. And I thought about Mark and Jaime with Luke and Jake. I thought about Shelby and Amanda with Lucas and Wren. I thought about Mitch and Oscar with Sophia and Matthew. I thought about Daniel and Michael with Angel and Christian and even little Eileen. There's an image of this new covenant. Children who couldn't find a place of welcome, who couldn't find a place where they would be fully loved and safe and cared for, have found forever homes by adoption by these couples. And that's the image that God gives us of this new covenant. We are adopted. We are chosen as God's beloved children, just as we are. And we are seen and loved and celebrated and welcomed and given a seat that is ours forever. No take backs. And that's the new covenant. And so I want to say to all of you who are creating those families You are so a part of God's plan. God is doing amazing things for you, and you are a sign and symbol of God's new covenant of love. He creates a place at the table for all of us, a forever home where we receive a new name and a seat of dignity and worth that is ours forever as God sings over us with love. And that is the good news of the gospel Thanks be to God. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen.